Hi, this is Kevin McCullough. Thanks for listening to the Christian Outlook podcast, where we cover today's issues from a perspective that honors your Christian faith. Our podcast is brought to you through a partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I trust you'll enjoy. Well, my next guest has written a book you need to read. It's called The Grace Message, Is the Gospel Really This Good? Well, the ministry that's dedicated to proclaiming the love and grace of God with boldness and clarity, Pastor Andrew Farley. He believes there's no greater message needed today than the message of God's grace. Now, in the book titled The Grace Message, Is the Gospel Really This Good? from Salem Books, he shares how grace turns everything upside down. Now, when you think about grace, do you think about it having an impact on everything? Every area of your life. Well, he says that lots of people are getting a lightweight understanding of God's grace, and it's only for them forgiveness when they fail and heaven when they die. They don't see the empowerment of God's grace. So we're going to talk about the grace message uh, with Dr. Andrew Farley. He's a best-selling author of nine books. He serves as president of the Grace Message, a nonprofit Christian media ministry dedicated to proclaiming the love and grace of God with boldness and clarity. He hosts the Grace Message with Dr. Andrew Farley every. Every weeknight and Sunday afternoon on Sirius XM Satellite Radio and on stations across North America. He's also the lead pastor of the Grace Church and has been recognized with several awards for his excellence in teaching. He lives in Dallas with his uh, family, wife and son, and we're just delighted to have him here with us today to talk about this extraordinary book. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, this is such an important subject, and you would think within the Christian church, this would be like the thing everybody understands, clings to, and recognizes as, uh, you know, the golden ticket, if you will. That's a a poor way of putting it, but I think you get the idea. Why is it that we have to be taught and retaught to understand and embrace and fully enjoy the, the benefits, the lavish grace that God has for his children? Yeah, well, we grow up uh, going to school, we work hard, and they give us good grades, and we go to the workplace and uh, give it our best effort, and they give us a promotion. So we're very much accustomed to an achieving system, and then we come to believe in Christ, and we now are engaged in a receiving system. It's the opposite, the polar opposite of what we experience on planet Earth, and so Grace turns everything upside down. It's it's not about our trying. It, it's really about our trusting, and it's not about what we're doing for God. It's really about what He did for us. So it's counterintuitive. It's an assault on the ego at times, mm. and we just have to be receivers of God's grace. You begin with an exploration of the Old Testament law, which is perhaps where some of our confusion comes from, and you contrast that with the New Covenant. Can you give us a, a kind of a brief overview of the two different systems and you know the fact that we're under the New Covenant, the benefit we enjoy because of what Christ has done? Yeah, I don't think we realize how stringent and even impossible the law really was. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was 613 commands uh, staring us in the face, everything from dietary laws to uh, ceremonial washings and sacrificial regulations. And, you know, we tend to think of the Old Testament law as 10 rules written on stone, uh, but it was much larger than that. And for a reason, I mean, Jesus comes along and basically shows that it's impossible. Hey, you think you're doing good avoiding adultery. I tell you, if you look with lust, it's the same thing. And you think you're doing great just avoiding murder. Well, I tell you, if you get angry with someone, it's the same as murder. 
um, he's raising the bar and showing the impossibility of true law keeping so that they would realize their need for God's grace. And, you know, God's grace is the polar opposite. It, it's not us trying our best to get close to God and stay close. It's, in fact, uh, the idea that Jesus made us close through the death, burial, and resurrection. Everything is free to the believer. Uh, we're forgiven for free. We're made righteous for free. We're brought near to God for free at no cost to us because it costs Jesus everything. Absolutely everything. And then you have the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that heap tradition and all sorts of rules that were never intended uh, on top of the law, making it even more impossible, but somehow believing that if we just add more to it, if we just try to clarify it in our own strength, then somehow we're going to measure up to what Jesus himself declared is an impossible standard. Yeah, I mean, what they were doing was they were they were adding things that were achievable for them personally, and then they were creating loopholes and they were creating exceptions and addendums and that sort of thing to try to make it palatable and doable. And, you know, the New Testament reveals if you keep the whole law and stumble in one point, James says, you're guilty of all of it. Uh, Galatians says you're under a curse if you're under the law because cursed is everyone who does not obey everything. So the law is not multiple choice. Uh, It's not choose your own adventure. Uh, It's not like a buffet line at your favorite restaurant. The law is an all or nothing proposition. And that's why we need God's grace instead. Now, let's begin by defining grace. How is it different from mercy or even forgiveness? Well, I mean, mercy is when you're driving down the road at 100 miles an hour and the police officer pulls you over and says, hey, I'm not going to give you a ticket today. I'm going to show you mercy. Uh, But if he pulls out a $1,000 bill and hands it to you, that's grace. I mean, grace is ridiculous. It's over the top. It's uh, it's just excessive and, and beyond measure. It's undeserved favor. And that's that's the difference between grace and mercy. But I think the average Christian, we're just looking at grace as, well, forgiveness and heaven. You know, God's a banker that canceled my debt, and he's a travel agent that has booked me for heaven. But God's grace is bigger than that. God's grace also means that God is a heart surgeon. He took out our heart of stone, gave us a new heart, filled us with new desires, gave us his spirit. So God's grace is equipping and Anybody that throws stones at God's grace or wants to lessen God's grace is going to lessen their victory over sin. Now, why? what is the new covenant and why is that so important? We've talked a little bit about the law and how impossible it is to live up to the standards there. And, you know, I think a lot of people question, well, why were they put in place? We know that Jesus explained to expose the fact that we we can't achieve, you know, God is so holy, his standards are so high, we cannot reach that standard. Well, let's talk about the new uh, covenant and how that somehow reconciles us to God in ways that the law never could. Yeah, so the promise of the new covenant is actually older than the old covenant. And a lot of folks don't realize that. But I mean, obviously, the, the promise given to Abraham was that he would be the father of many nations. And that's what the new covenant is. Uh, Jesus Christ was lifted up on that cross. He begins to invite anyone and everyone to come to him. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And when we're saved, we enter into the benefits of this new covenant. And it's not our promise to God. It's actually God's promise to himself. 
Uh, Hebrews tells us this. It says God could could not swear by anyone greater, so he swore by himself. And we learn that the new covenant is basically God promising God. So on one hand, you've got the faithfulness of God, and on the other hand, you've got the faithfulness of God. And that's what locks us in. That's why we're saved and forgiven and righteous, because God has promised himself uh, to keep us secure. So the old covenant was their promises. Uh, God, we're really going to do it this time. We'll rededicate. We'll recommit. We'll obey everything, Lord. And it, it was a story of failure upon failure. And that's why the new covenant is so radically different. It's not about our promise keeping. It's about God's promise keeping to himself. I know that you, when you've presented the message of of grace, sometimes it's interpreted as being dangerous, that it is a cheap grace that you're referencing, that it gives people a license to sin. Can you uh, respond to those objections? And we'll go a bit deeper uh, in that area. But um, why do people fear the notion of grace as the scripture describes it? Yeah, when people call it dangerous grace, I like to say, well, yeah, it's dangerous to the enemy. If you get a hold of God's grace, Titus 2 says the grace of God teaches us to say no to sin. The enemy doesn't want that. The enemy wants you uh, looking at rules, trying to engage in rule keeping, being scared of God, trying to impress God every day with your actions. That's not the gospel. So grace is dangerous, but it's only dangerous to the enemy. Somebody says it's cheap grace. Well, I don't get that because, as we said earlier, it costs Jesus his life and it's free to us. So there's no place for cheap grace. And then, you know, people will say it's hyper grace. I like to say, yeah, I'm I'm pretty hyper about it myself. And the New Testament even uses the prefix hyper multiple times to talk about God's grace, that it's excessive, it's overabundance. Uh, the overabundance of grace is it's off the charts. It's amazing. And then lastly, I would just say, you know, people are, are saying grace is uh, a license to sin. Well, aren't we sinning just fine without a without license? license. <laughs> as, I, as I look at the Christian world, here we are afraid of God, trying to impress God, trying hard to work for God to get in, in his good graces. We're, we're in this achieving system, and yet we're failing and we're sinning just fine. So what if we gave God's grace a chance? I mean, Jesus said, whoever's forgiven much— loves much. And do we believe him on that, that that forgiveness and grace and the kindness of the Lord, that's what leads us to repentance and motivates and inspires us. Um, how is grace connected to the gospel message? And in, in coming to Christ and recognizing what he's done for us, how does that connection um, help us better understand the value and the virtue of grace? Yeah, well, grace is not a special focus. It's not a special emphasis. Uh, Grace is the gospel itself. I mean, we're told in in the book of Acts that the gospel is called the gospel of grace. That's Acts 20, 24. Uh, We're told elsewhere that uh, God has given us grace upon grace, that Jesus is full of grace. Uh, Romans says we're standing in grace. Uh, Titus 2 says the grace of God teaches us to say no to sin. I mean, we could go on and on. There's dozens and dozens of passages showing us that grace is the very core of the gospel. In fact, it's what differentiates Christianity from world religions. I mean, 
the common theme in world religions is you do your part, you work your hardest, God will grade on a curve. You try to get clean and get pure and get right through your obedience, and maybe, just maybe, uh, you will satisfy the deity. And that's what we see in world religions with a founder and a rule book, and you keep the rules, and you're in good standing. If you fail to keep the rules, you're punished. And that's religion, but that's not what Christianity really is. Uh, Christianity is about relying on the work of another, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Uh, He hung on that cross and said it's finished, and then, of course, we learn through the New Testament that salvation is free by grace we're saved. Well, I think this is one of the areas where there's confusion. We know that legalism is opposed to the the grace message. But what role does obedience play? We know that we're not earning our salvation. We're not earning favor um, before God, but we are called to be obedient. How does that fit into the grace message and the the grace that we uh, enjoy in Christ? Yeah, so God's grace is equipping. And when we were saved, it was more than a ticket to heaven. It was more than an invitation to attend a building once a week on Sunday morning. Um, It was actually a heart surgery. You might even say a DNA swap at the core of our being. Uh, He took out our heart of stone and gave us a new heart. Romans 6 says that that new heart is an obedient heart, and that's the connection we need to make. Uh, Look, I can be forgiven and yet miserable. Mm -hmm. I can be righteous and yet miserable. So why do I want to be miserable in choosing sin? Uh, I've got this new heart. There's only one thing that's going to satisfy me. Uh, And so I'm going to prove that God is right about me. Uh, I'm going to prove it by sinning and being miserable or by trusting Jesus and being fulfilled. But either way, I prove that my heart is an obedient heart. I'm addicted to Jesus. I'm allergic to sin. Hmm. I think when we come to recognize the the depth of God's grace um, that, again, he lavishes on us, our heart's desire is to please him out of gratitude and love rather than that sense of obligation that so often drives us uh, to be legalistic. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm either waking up uh, Monday morning and deciding I'm going to behave today in order to earn points and achieve status and get the certificates redeemable in heaven's gift shop, or I'm waking up Monday morning realizing you know what, Father, you've told me I'm your child, that I'm new-hearted, that I'm dead to sin, alive to God, that you've got the market cornered on on satisfaction, and I believe you, that you're good. So today I'm going to taste and see that the Lord is good. And if that's my motivation, well, that's healthy Christianity. What does it mean to die to sin? Um, We struggle throughout our lifetime because we still are in the flesh. What does it mean to die to to sin? And what role does grace play in the the working out, the sanctification that is part of the life of every believer? Yeah, so it's interesting because when we actually look at this phrase, die to sin, uh, it's used in past tense for the believer. So this happened to us at salvation. I mean, Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified mm-hmm. with Christ. And Romans 6 says, I, I, my old self died. Uh, Paul even says, you died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? So 
that's that heart surgery I was talking about a moment ago. I, I may not realize that I have a, a heart surgery that's occurred. I may still think that uh, I'm the same as the guy next door. I mean, that guy next door, he lays awake nights dreaming of new ways to sin. And then here you and I are talking about ways to not sin. So uh, we're spiritually, well, we're aliens in this world. We're, we're not a good fit with a fallen world. And so if I could just wrap my mind around the fact that it's not just that Jesus died for my sins, I died with Jesus. And when I died with Jesus, I died to sin's power. And that means sin doesn't have to have dominance over me anymore. I can say no to sin, and I can say yes to who I really am. But there's a process there. I mean, you're right. I'm learning and I'm growing in that truth. I, I don't have perfect understanding. And so God says we'll be transformed by the renewing of our minds. But let me just let me just clarify one thing mm-hmm. that I think is really lacking in, in the average person's understanding. This doesn't mean that my heart is wicked and deceitful and all those things that we like to say. No, you've got the new heart. What you need is is new attitudes, new perspectives, the renewing of the mind. So it's like software and hardware. Uh, When you bring a computer home, the hardware's new, but you still might need some software updates. Well, likewise, we've got the new spiritual hardware as believers, but we still need some software updates, the renewing of the mind. Yeah, I think some of us are carrying around the corpse of our sin nature, not realizing we have been crucified with Christ and and we live in him. How can we live in God's grace? What are some practical steps that you would suggest for those of us who want to live and embrace fully all that God has for us? Yeah, so, uh, you know, we could bring sin nature into it because you mentioned that. I mean, uh, so I had a great talk in 2009 uh, with Zondervan, the publishing house. They published my first book, and I said, hey, look, uh, you guys have the NIV Bible, and you are perpetuating this uh, sinful nature verbiage, and it's not actually in the original language. Uh, would you look at that again? And sure enough, they did. After two decades of it being in there, they changed it back to flesh. And I think that's important. Uh, it's not just semantics, because you know what we need to tell believers is you've got a new nature, Uh, Your new spiritual nature is that you're one spirit with the Lord, and yet you've got the stinking thinking, and that's what the flesh is. It's stinking thinking. It's it's old attitudes. It's remnants of that old self in your attitudes, but the old self is gone. So you need to be reprogrammed in your mind, let go of fleshly thinking, and you ask me about you know, what's the best way forward? Well, you fuel up. I mean, you fuel up on God's truth and you fuel up on God's grace and you you set your mind on the goodness of God and the goodness of the gospel. And I, I think if we learn who we are in Christ, then we can be ourselves and express Jesus at the same time. I mean, we're not an obstacle to God. We're his instruments. Yeah, that's good. Now, what do you say to people who don't believe that God's grace is as good as the Bible says? My first suggestion would be read the book and then read the book. Uh, but how would you respond to, to one who uh, isn't convinced that God's grace is as good as the scriptures say? 
Yeah, I think they need a heavier dose of law for about 15 minutes to come to their senses. Uh, You know, if we're going to say God's grace is not this big, then what's our answer? Go back to the law and you'll quickly find Jesus said, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye be perfect like God, go sell everything in order to enter the kingdom. I mean, Jesus showed us the stringency of true self-improvement. He showed us how impossible it was so that we would realize our need for God's grace. So when somebody says, no, no, it's not all about grace, or no, no, God's grace is not that big, I would just invite them to go examine the law again and come back when they're done, because when you see the law in all of its impossible glory, then the grace of God shines even more brightly. Oh, absolutely. In fact, Jesus said he fulfilled the law. We were so blessed to be free from the burden of of all that was yes. in it. Well, Dr. Farley, I thank you for the book, and I thank you for taking time to to join us here today. Once again, the book is The Grace Message. Is the gospel really this good? The answer, yes. <laughs> uh, published by Salem Books. Thank you so much, Dr. Farley. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Christian Outlook. Our program is coming to you today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you enjoy our podcast, take a moment and tell a friend to subscribe today.